0: This semester, we're going through the book. We'll actually be going through the uh, first part of the book of Genesis. And um, here's my goal. I'm telling you the goal for like, for the next ex- at least the next four weeks, if not the whole semester. This might make you want to run out of the room. But this is kind of my application. This is what I'm gunning for the whole time. I want you to have an existential crisis. That's what I'm shooting for. A, a panic attack, essentially. That's what we're gunning for. Um, and, and what that is fundamentally, I want you to ask, I want you to be bold enough to ask yourself and maybe to ask others why questions. Uh, the why questions of life. Why are you doing what you do? Why are you here? Um, why are you making the choices you make? Just ask yourself the why questions. We'll go on, we'll move on from the existential crisis, but that's actually really kind of what I'm gunning for tonight and really the next. Couple of weeks. And our barriers to asking the why questions are actually kind of two things. They're the same thing, but they look totally different. Or either laziness or busyness. Those are two ways we avoid actually a right existential crisis. Is we either become really busy and we just get in the mode of doing things, and as long as we have enough responsibility on our plate, we never actually have to think about why we do anything, or we become lazy. We just kind of sedate ourselves, we do nothing. And that way we can avoid asking ourselves why questions. Um, These first couple of weeks, I hope you have an existential crisis. That's what we're shooting for. And we're reading Genesis 1. And we're reading, really, uh, Genesis because that's actually a a text that's written to a people who as a corporate group are having an existential crisis. Um, The first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. And Moses wrote them. We know that from other places. It doesn't say it in the Pentateuch, but in other places, in Second Chronicles um, 25, 4, Ezra 6, 18. But also Jesus quotes the first five books of the Bible, and he quotes Genesis. And when he does that, he calls it the book of Moses. Um, so God believes that uh, Genesis was written by Moses. And, uh, and the Bible attests to that. And he's writing Genesis in this context. If you're not familiar with Moses' story, the people of Israel are God's people. At the end of Genesis, we won't get all the way there this semester, but if you're familiar with the story, at the end of Genesis, they move into Egypt because there's a famine in their land. And then we pick up in the books of Ex- in the book of Exodus, and it's hundreds of years later, and now they're actually an enslaved people group in Egypt. And God calls His servant Moses to come and deliver His people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses is writing this book during the time in which Israel was between, they were out of slavery, and what God promised them is he promised them land, right? A promised land. And they're in between this place, which is, the, they, were, they used to be in slavery, and they were out of it, and they are supposed to be in a promised land, and they're wandering in a desert, And they're looking around, and they're like, I feel like I'm supposed to be going somewhere. I feel like this has meaning. I think God said he was faithful, but honestly, it doesn't look like there's a payoff. I'm supposed to be moving towards a goal, but there's not one there. We're supposed to be in the promised land, and we're not there. They're having a crisis, and Moses, inspired by God, writes the book of Genesis, the first five books of the Bible, to this group of people, lost in the desert where things are supposed to be right and finally fixed because they're delivered out of slavery, but it's not fixed yet. And they're having an existential crisis. And so what he's doing is he's writing to that group of people. And they're in the desert, and they're looking around at other nations that serve other gods. And they're looking around, they're saying, like, they have a land, they're prospering, they have a strong military. And and here we are in the desert, and we're trusting this God for a promised land that never seems to come. And they're tempted because what we often see all throughout the whole Testament, uh, while they're in the desert but also beyond, they're tempted to look at other gods and follow those gods. And so Moses is speaking, and, and, and Genesis 1 specifically addresses this issue. The first thing he says is, the first thing you need to know, there's one true God. And that's really what the, what the beginning of Genesis begins to teach us. He's beginning to address the most fundamental questions about all of life in this book. He's writing... To a book. He's writing a book to people that are having an existential crisis. And, uh, and what I hope happens is that if you do have a crisis, I hope that you will find there is hope. Uh, and that's what the first couple of weeks are about. And so I'm not going to read all of the verses I put on there. I'm going to read a first uh, couple of verses, then I'm going to skip to the end because this is a prominent passage. Most of us are familiar with it, so I'm going to read some things that give us a sense of what's going on, and then I'm going to skip to the end um and and i put it all there so you could read it if you'd like to but this is the word of god genesis 1 1 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form and void the darkness was over the face of the deep the spirit of god was hovering over the face of the waters and god said let there be light and there was light and god saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness He called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. and God said, "Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, let it separate the waters from the waters, and God made the expanse and separated the waters uh, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so what he's doing there is he's we live in a world in which water's both below us and above us, right that's what's being described the expanse. Uh, is called the heaven. It's called the space in between. It's called the sky in between the clouds above us and the water below. He called the expanse heaven, and there's evening and there's morning and second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered. He called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind on the earth and it was so the earth brought forth vegetation plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which the, in which is their seed each according to its kind and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day i'm going to skip to verse 24 And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth. Over every creeping thing, that creeps on the earth, and we skip to verse twenty-one. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word, and as we ponder these first words that you give to your people, I pray that your Spirit would attend to them, dear God. Um. Give us the courage to ask why questions in life. It's a scary thing to do that. I don't want to do it. Dear Lord, teach us from your word. Uh, become beautiful to us. Uh, set our hearts upon you. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, Soren hates when I do this, but how many Lord of the Rings readers do we have in here? Okay, thank you. Now I know who all the Christians are. Um, Soren hates... I'm going to bring up Lord of the Rings because it's the cliched Christian fiction to bring up, or Christian uh, fiction written by a Christian. Um, when you all read Lord of the Rings, I don't know if you've had this experience, especially if you've read it multiple times. Um, are there parts that you skip? What are the parts that you skip? Beginning of the first book? Of the first book? Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil. no, no come on. <laughs> 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 Tom Bombadil is awesome. I'm with Michael on that. There are actually parts I regularly skip, um, and I don't know if y'all have this experience too, but kind of laced all throughout uh, all three books are actually songs, and I always skip the songs. You know what I'm talking about? You skip the songs? Are y'all song skippers? I'm a song skipper too. Huh. Um, I bring that up for this purpose. Uh, it's actually very important to that Tolkien actually does something that Moses is doing here. I bring that up so we can actually learn how to read the Bible respectfully and treat Genesis 1 the right way. What Tolkien does in that book is most of the book, he tells us about what's happening through narrative prose, just regular storytelling genre. Sometimes what he does is he talks about the same events in the form of a song, and it reads differently, and he uses different literary devices Because when you communicate ideas through song, you use, you think about it and you approach it a different way than when you communicate ideas through narrative. You all tracking with me on that. That's actually something that happens in the Bible. Uh, One of the places in Judges 4 and 5, in Judges 4 you have this encounter uh, with two judges over Israel, Deborah and Barak, where they, um, there's all this conflict that ensues with other nations and everything. Judges 5 is actually a song about it. So there's a historical count, and historical counts have a goal. The goal of a historical count, for the most part, is to give you uh, a, a kind of scientific who, when, where, how did it happen, right? But what does a song do? The purpose of the song is not to give those kind of details. The purpose of the song is actually to bring you in the power of that moment, right? You can talk about a relationship and give the who, when, where, what, why, how it happened, right? Right? But when you write a song about the relationship, the purpose of writing the song about the relationship is different. It actually still communicates true things about the relationship, but its purpose is different. Its purpose is for you to actually enter into the power of the relationship, the feelings of the relationship. I bring that up because most of you, if you've read the first book of Genesis, and also if you walked into any um, uh, religion class in college, they'll talk about how Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are two different creation accounts, and they are. And usually people will say, well, there are two different creation accounts and they clearly contradict each other because there are some things that seem to contradict each other. But they contradict each other just as much as any time you give a historical detail, a scientific account of something versus a song. When you ask a song to be a scientific historical account of something, it's going to fail and seem contradictory to your scientific historical account. Now, what I'm not saying is, I'm not opening the door for evolution, but what I am saying is we've got to respect Genesis 1 for what it is. And Genesis 2 does give us a very clear historical account of God's creation of man, the fact that God made everything. And Genesis 1 does give us some of the how of it. But we've got to respect the genre. Because Genesis 1 very clearly reads like a poem. When you read it, you can't help but pick up on it, Right? They're constant repetition. There's, there's this, um, and God said, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the first day, and it keeps going. And I bring that up to say, we, Genesis 1's really been misused a lot. We misuse Genesis 1 to have these creation evolution debates. Those debates are good. We should have them. aside side with historical, orthodox, regular Christianity. They're good, and we should have those debates. That's fine. Genesis 1 kind of isn't a text to be used in those debates. It's not a historical scientific account. It has history in it, has history we can ch- trust. Its purpose is to not give us a blow-by-blow how, when, and where. Its purpose is actually for us to enter into the power and the feelings and for us to be affected by the creation account. Um, you know, would you rely on a song for a scientific description of a relationship? Of course not. You rely on a song to feel it. Um, Genesis 1's making points about creation. It's actually making points, certain historical points about how it was created. Um, but, why, but the reason that you read and the reason you write poetry is actually to be moved by it, to delight in it, to encounter the power of it. And what Genesis 1 is answering, more than the question of how, what's the scientific breakdown of how it all happened? Genesis 2 addresses that. What Genesis 1's doing is this actually before that answering the why? You see, why questions are actually more important and more interesting than how questions. We want to get involved in all the how questions about oh, creation and evolution, that's fine, do that, but they're actually in all of life, everything else you address, why questions are more important than how questions. But sometimes we get, oftentimes, we get distracted with the how questions of creation. But if someone gives you something you don't understand, Your first inclination is not, how does it work? Your first inclination is, what is this for? Why questions proceed and drive and motivate everything we do. Why questions are actually the fundamental reason we make all of our decisions is because we have answers, whether we're cognitive of it or not, of all of our why questions. Why questions are purpose questions. You have a reason why you got up this morning when you did. You have a reason why you chose what you ate and why you put on the clothes you chose and why you went to class at whatever time you went. Why questions sit underneath everything we do. And that's what Moses chooses to address first. And as we answer the why questions, there are really two ways you have to answer it. You actually first have to answer who. Because the why is, is first of all actually informed by the who. Who made you? And that's our first question tonight. Who made you? And, the, and the, uh, the passage begins, In the beginning, God. God is first, foremost. He is first. He is primal. He is ultimate. He is before all things. It's the first thing Moses says. And he says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, again, Mo- Moses is speaking into this polytheistic world with all these gods floating around. And what he systematically does and poetically does is he goes around all of creation and he goes what? In the beginning, God created, what, light and dark? Probably the two most fundamental concepts we have, light and dark. It's probably the first thing you become aware of as a human. He says God made those. Night and day, God made those. Water, sky, God made those. He's categorically listing all of creation. Sun, moon, stars, about those, God made them. Vegetation, He made that. Plants, he made that. All the different kinds of animals, he made that. Man, he made that. He's systematically going through and he's saying, the first thing he says is God is first, and the next thing he says, and God made everything. And this word create that's actually used in verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, um, it's actually only used two other places in the accounts. It's used in verse 21 and verse 27. And it's a Hebrew word, it's bara, and the other word that shows up when it says, and God made, like God made the expanse, is actually a different Hebrew word. And at the very beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, what Moses is saying, what that word created means actually to form out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing, if you've heard that term before. And what's happening in these first three verses before we get to kind of all the creation days is Moses is saying before there was anything, actually before the creation days, God made the raw materials. Sometimes people have read said the earth was without form and void, darkness was over the face of the deep, and saying there was evil chaos in the world and God was going to bring order to it. That's not what Moses is saying. What he's saying in the first three verses is first thing God did is he made the raw materials. He made the earth, it was out form, it didn't have void, it wasn't habitable. But it wasn't evil, it, was just, it wasn't habitable yet. It wasn't the beauty that was supposed to come. Raw materials aren't bad. What he's saying is, God made the canvas and the paints, and they're sitting there, the canvas and the paint, there's nothing beauty about, beautiful about them yet, but the first thing he did is he made the raw materials. And what goes on through the days of creation is he created the raw materials, and then he makes them into stuff. And that's why that other word is used. We, we, this is actually a concept we get. You make meals. You didn't create out of nothing the things you received. You took raw materials and you made them. uh, Chapter 1, verse 1 is God created the raw materials out of nothing. He spoke them into being. The rest of the chapter is God then made them. He shaped them into things. And the other places where we see the word create show up again is when he creates something else out of nothing. He creates the animals out of nothing, and then he creates mankind out of nothing. And those are the only other times we see that word create. And the point is, again, is this. It's that Moses is saying, he's talking about the primacy of God. That's the point he's making, that God is first. He's above all. He precedes all. He is the first cause. And there's an interesting aspect to the fact that Moses choose to answer that because Moses is actually answering a question that ancient religions and modern-day atheists and agnostics actually don't answer well or actually kind of answer the same way. Because when you read about the ancient religions, I kind of read on some different scholars that, um, reflected on different creation stories according to different ancient religions and all of those other stories creation comes from something gods die and it comes from their body it comes from procreation between the gods it comes from blood spilt by the gods it comes from their brain whatever it is but it comes from a pre-existent matter and what's interesting is that the, is, what's interesting is that the ancient religions and modern day atheism actually have that in common they both believe in some kind of pre existent matter, and they never actually ask the question or answer the question of where did the pre existent matter come from? You see, that's the very first thing Moses deals with where the pre existent matter came from. He's saying, at the very beginning, God spoke, and out of nothing, there was nothing pre existent before God. Out of, and it was not an emanation from God, it was not a part of God coming loose from him. Out of nothing, God made the pre existent matter. And so you see, in some ways, Moses is answering questions that actually aren't really being asked in most of the debates that are had about this text. Does that make sense? Are y'all tracking with that? Um, And the answer, uh, he's really answering the question of first. And the thing is, is, there's really only fundamentally two ways you can answer that question of first what is pre existent, what is first? There's only two options. And it's either there's something impersonal or there's something personal. There's even an impersonal force that creates this world that makes what we have, that makes who we are, or there's an impersonal force. And if there's a personal force, it has a reason and a purpose. People make things for purpose. If it's an impersonal force, force, then it has no purpose. It's just a cataclysmic kind of coincidence. All the particles gathered together, and it was just kind of a cosmic accident. Hence, there's no purpose. And you see, in one situation, if it's a personal force that created things for a purpose, and that means everything has intrinsic beauty and value. That means on the days when things are beautiful and there's cause for rejoicing, then there's legitimate cause for rejoicing. On the days when you're grateful, there's cause for gratitude, and there is also someone to thank. If you read Surprised by Joy, it's actually C.S. Lewis's autobiography of how he came to faith. He was a staunch atheist. And the reason he came to faith when you read that story is actually this. He encountered joy and he encountered beauty and he encountered truth and he couldn't explain why they existed. Because those things point toward a purpose. They say this world is supposed to be beautiful. There's something that's supposed to be right about this world. If the world's an accident, joy and beauty and truth don't exist and they have no meaning. But if they're real, then there's cause for thanks. And there's also someone to thank. And Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. In the other worldview, if there is no purpose, then creation has no meaning. And that means that beauty and joy and truth, when encountered, are no cause for thanks because they're not real. And there's nobody to thank, in fact. There's no cause for wonder because wonder is just an illusion. Your instinct that there's right and wrong, your instinct that there's good and bad is actually just a DNA strand operating in a certain way to make you preserve your own race or your own species. But you see, kind of in that, it's actually the great glory and it's the great flaw of macroevolution and Darwin theory and all that kind of stuff. There's actually kind of a glorious flaw in it. Because there's no reason... Why a species, why earth, why nature, why man would seek its own preservation? There's no value in it if it's an accident. And yet that's the undergirding value that drives Darwinism, is that the preservation of life is what all of creation is pointed and oriented towards. There's no reason for it. Why Life is no better than death. Darwinism actually doesn't make sense within its own system. It's actually it's meaningless. Why would, why would creation seek life? There's, if life is no better than death, death, in fact, might even be better than life. It's certainly easier, right? You see, it's a flaw because Darwinism provides no reason for its own primary motivation, but it's kind of a glorious fall because what it reveals is that in our best attempts to try to explain creation apart from God, his fingerprints are still all over the way we think because nobody can get past the fact that it's horrific for beauty to be desecrated and for life to be lost and for people to enter pain in our best attempts to explain the world without God, we still end up stumbling on the fact that it is good and right for life to happen and for beauty to surround us and for, and for pain to not occur. Moses' point is that there is one personal God and he spoke creation into being and this has immediate application to all of us because it's the starting point of how you open your eyes every day. The whole... Kind of the secondary premise of the first Toy Story movie is actually built on this, the first kind of conflict that goes on in there tracking the here. Um, you know, Woody is jealous about Buzz's kind of uh, the fact that the kids uh, Andy loves Buzz more. But the kind of secondary struggle that's going on is Buzz and what he believes about the world, right? In that movie, Buzz believes he's a Space Ranger, and he's not. He's a toy. And it's caused for conflict and consternation and brokenness and everything's messed up and he can't relate to people, right? Woody understands who he is. He understands, more importantly, whose he is. And so he understands reality and how to operate within it. I mean, seriously, like, (laughs) that's it. That's what Moses is talking about right here. Our world is fouled up. The way we interact in this world is messed up. Because we keep thinking we're something more than what we are. We keep thinking we're God's. No, we are God's kings and his image bearers in this world. But we're his. And the reason life is so hard is the same reason that life is so hard for Buzz Lightyear. He keeps believing he's something he's not. And when he gets it, he gets whose he is. We're going to be answering the, the implications of that all semester. But there are a couple of implications right off the bat. The first thing... That happens in this text is Moses prevents us from material. He counters materialism. He argues against materialism, the worship of stuff. And this is the religion of our culture. It's so much religion of our culture that people have taken the Bible and bent it into the worship of stuff, the prosperity gospel stuff. They've taken even good things and turned it into religion that is the worship of stuff. The worship of the stuff is you've got to succeed, you've got to have the right things, and you're going to be happy. And what this account of Genesis says is no. These things are not worthy of worship. The physical world cannot bear the weight of worship that you're trying to give it. And so it counters materialism, but at the same time, it counters super-spiritualism. It doesn't say that this physical world is bad. In fact, what's the chorus line? And it was good. This kind of notion that denying yourself happiness and denying yourself enjoying things in this world is super-spirituality is false. It might, in fact, actually be sub spirituality. Denial of self, when the Bible talks about it, is not a denial of enjoyment of creation, it's a denial of selfishness. That's what the Bible's talking about. Because the, the creation account, the first thing God chooses to tell us is, it's good. All of it's good. I made it. And over and over again, as I point to all the different things I made, I want you to know, I made it and it was good. It's not super spiritual to not enjoy creation. In the new heavens and the new earth, when it's all made new again and you get to the end of the book in Revelation 21, guess what happens? It's the physical world. It is the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth coming down into this world. There's going to be a gritty, earthy, physical reality to the consummation. The physical world's not bad. In fact, it is good, and it is to be enjoyed. And now there's a crucial distinction. God made creation to be enjoyed, but not to be worshiped. And that's often what we do. And we can take this doctrine of the goodness of creation and certainly abuse it. And in fact, in some ways, that's the fundamental flaw in our plan. That's why it all breaks. is because we take a gift received from God and start to worship it as God. Our marriage would fall apart if Elizabeth gave me a PS3 and I worshiped the PS3 and used it to ignore. In fact, I sold my PlayStation 2 because I had a PlayStation 2 and I worshiped the thing I had and not the person who loved me. We can certainly abuse this principle. In fact, it's kind of fundamental to who we are. But at the end, y'all, it's going to be physical again. The physical world is good. God delights in it. It's his handiwork. It's his art. It's to be enjoyed. It's not super spiritual to not have a TV. If you're content without a TV, that's fine. Guess what? It doesn't make you a better Christian. It just doesn't. The physical world's good. You can abuse TV. Be careful with that one. Um... The physical world is good. Wonderful food is good. Great art is good. Good work is good. Working cars, functional buildings, trees, mountains, oceans—they are all good. Enjoy it. And this really leads us into the second point of why it was made, because you see that chorus line is telling. And the chorus line in a song and in a poem. This is really a poetry more than anything else. The that. A chorus line is the heartbeat of it, right? It's the main message in a song that explains everything you're reading. And you see, when God said, make something, and he says, and it was good, he's not merely making a dry kind of declaration. I made that, and that's good. This is what he's doing. He's delighting in it. When he's saying it's good, he's not making an observation. He's actually delighting in it. Creation was made to be delighted in. You were made to be delighted in. Revelation 4 is actually the Apostle John peeking into the throne room in heaven and the worship that takes place there. And when he sees the worship, this is the climactic cry of worship at the end of that episode that the the heavens are seeing to the Lord in the throne room. And it says Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. What's going on in the throne room is created beings are worshiping God. The creation is delighting in him as he delights in them. Creation was made for the glory and the delight of the Lord. And creating beings, when we're not blinded by our sin, we respond in worship by glorifying God. Now, there's an important subtle point. It's a little bit complex. If you can follow me on this, it's hard to get. It's one of the harder aspects of Christianity to understand that's taking place here that's important for understanding why God made a world to delight in. When the passage begins, it says, in the beginning, God. In the Hebrew word there, we don't, I don't normally do a lot of language stuff, but this is significant. The Hebrew word there for God is the word Elohim. You've probably heard that before. And that suffix, that eem suffix, is the Hebrew version of s. It's the thing you add to an end to make things plural. And so it actually says, in the beginning, God, and the word for God is plural. And what happens right at the very beginning, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And there's this notion that there's this thing called the Spirit of God present. present. And the very next thing that happens is, God says, Let there be light and there was light. The next things that happen the next thing that happens is God's word comes in. And as we get further in scripture, as you get to John 1, you actually John says, The word of God is Jesus. And so in these very first three verses, we start to get this kind of odd image of what's going on. And what Moses is kind of giving us is he's beginning to see a shadow or a glimmer of the Trinity. And the Trinity is something weird and it's something we don't necessarily understand. But isn't it amazing that one of the first things God communicates is his triune nature. And that's an important and subtle point. And it's actually very important for understanding the why. Well, also in verse 26, uh, you heard me emphasize it. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Again, you get that plural. Some people have said that's God speaking to uh, angels. Men aren't made in the image of angels. That doesn't square with the rest of Scripture at all. I think what we again see is actually the plurality of God Himself. God is a cosmic unity. He is one, and He is three. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, they're, and He's present in His triune nature at the very beginning. It's one of the first things He chooses to communicate. Now, why is that important for what we're saying tonight? It's important if... If God is not one, because other places one of his primary declarations about himself to the world is, I am one, because he's speaking into this world that has all these different gods. I am one God. If God is not one, then he can't be ultimate. In other words, if God is not one, but rather there's three gods, and they're all independent of each other, well, then which one's ultimate? Because none of them actually can be God, and they're all vying for power and control. And what we just would hope is that they all kind of to get along for a while. If God is not one, then he cannot be ultimate. He has to be one. He's not competing with other deities. There are not three gods competing together for power. If there are three gods, then none of them, in fact, are ultimate. But here's the other thing. If God is not also a community in and of himself, he can't be love. If God is not a community, if he is not also a plurality, he can't be love. Because, you see, love is an interpersonal thing. And why did God make creation? He made creation to pour his love out into it, to delight in it, to love it well. If before creation, when there was nothing, there was only one God, he actually couldn't be love. Because there was nothing else to love. And if he couldn't be love and love was not part of his essence, he would have never made creation. Because creation is him saying, I want to share my love with something more so I make it. So you see, actually for creation to happen, God has to be three. God has to be a community, a plurality, a God that exists and has loved always throughout all of eternity. And in his love, in the Father's love for the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit's love for the Father and the Son, and the Son's Son's love for the Spirit and the Father, their love is so outgoing and overflowing that he chose to create something else to share their love with. God has to be one to be ultimate. He has to be three to even create, because he has to be three to be love. And love is the reason he made stuff. It was his choice to make something and then pour his love into. That's the why. You were made to be delighted in by the triune God. You were made to be delighted in by the triune God. Okay, that's got to blow our minds for a second. Think on that one. You were made to be delighted in by the triune God. Trinity's mysterious. We put it in the corner because we don't have to deal with it. Um, but it's at the very beginning, it actually explains why the world was made. It's because his love was so overflowing and outgoing. He wanted to share it. And that's the gospel. And you see, in the sense, there's a sense in which all of nature testifies to this whiness, to the fact that we're made to be delighted in. And here's an illustration, kind of, a, of nature testifying to it, or, or a way in which we see nature testifying to it. Um, at night, when we put the girls down, I like getting the baby girl, the big girls, well, both all of them, um, but the big girls are a little bit more manageable. Um, getting their attention and looking in their eyes, and in their brief little non-ADD moment, um, <laughs> capturing their attention and saying, "Mary Walton, I love you, and you're beautiful to me." And those are the richest moments of the day because I have their attention. We're not distracted by anything, and they beam. I mean, it's just y'all love it. I mean, some of y'all actually experience it with my children. Come experience it with my children; it's the bomb. Um, but when I delight in them, they beam. They melt me. They beam with joy and beauty. I say that to say children are the closest thing I have to a creation. And that's comparable to this. Creation beams at its creator every day. This is what you feel when you encounter beauty in creation. Those moments where we finally step back from our business and see something beautiful and transcendent. And there's that that moment of power where you feel like you're seeing into something almost like something kind of powerful and wondrous is before us, and you can't quite get on it. You know those moments where nature becomes beautiful, where art becomes beautiful, where it's transcendent. You feel like time stops. And it kind of seems to be fleeting, you know, because you can't quite get in on that moment. You know it's there. You love those moments, and you can't quite get on it. it, It's kind of fleeting. It's kind of muted. Uh, Kind of our best... Uh, attempts at really enjoying creation and seeing the transcendent moments of creation being beautiful for its Lord, kind of like, like eating food when your tongue's burnt. Like you're aware that something rich is happening, but you know you're never really fully getting in on it. You're aware of the richness and the goodness of it, but you're not getting in on it. And that's the beaming of creation towards its creator. Because the flowers haven't rebelled and the mountains haven't rebelled and the oceans haven't rebelled and the hearts of the stars and the clouds have not rebelled. This is a point that Tim Keller made, and I think it's a powerful point. You're watching God delight in his creation, and you're watching creation beam at him. The best moments, those powerful moments, they're glorious, and yet they somehow still feel muted to us, like we can't get quite in on it. And the reason why is because we've rebelled against our purpose. When we tried to beat our own God, to be our own gods for our own delight. And the, the question for tonight really is this. is What is your functional purpose? What is it really? And don't, don't answer it for me. Answer it for yourself. What is it really? Um, it's a good thing to have an existential crisis from time to time. Here's another way to think about it. Um, if I watched on TV your life today, What would I gather your fundamental purpose is? If a third party watched on TV your life today, what would they gather your fundamental purposes? Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't work. We're going to look at what it means to be human next week. We're going to find out that actually working and taking care of responsibility is part of humanity. But what are you really doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you at college? Seriously, why are you at college? Every now and then, unfortunately, I've picked on a couple of poor souls and just asked that annoying little kid question that's brilliant, why over and over again and uh, y'all probably know who you are who have done that and and I just kind of did it as an exercise I kept asking people why they did what they did and you know what most of us don't have good answers you're at college because really that's what people do so that you can get a degree to get a job okay why so that you can make money and save money okay why what are you doing you saving up to die Seriously. Why? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Here's what I'm trying to do in life. This is my existential crisis before you. So you, I, I, I don't stand up here as like a paragon of like, I've got it all figured out. All right? <laughs> I want to do enough in my marriage and in my family so that my wife will think I'm a good husband and, is, and doesn't mind the periodic selfishness that I want to indulge in. I want to do enough in front of y'all for y'all to think, oh, he's witty and insightful, right? And so you won't mind all the other ways that I'm a jerk. I want to do good enough so that I have your approval and have my wife's approval to do whatever else I want to do. I kind of want to buy license to be selfish. That's what I want to do. It's my why. It's pretty weak. What's your why? What's functionally, what are you really doing here? I think we, the reason we do most of the things we do is actually because we're afraid we're not going to be delighted in um, We might might not be beautiful. We might not be seen as beautiful or appreciated as beautiful. We might might not be approved. We might not be accepted. Our work, the things that we do, we do them so we would make ourselves worthy of delight. That's what we want. We want somebody to see it and say it's valuable, right? And our laziness, the things we don't do, we do them because we don't think we could ever be worthwhile, so we kind of want to numb that need to be delighted in, to be loved. And see, the heart again of laziness and busyness is the same. Both are afraid that no one's ever going to look at us and say, I delight in you. And you see, it's precisely because we ran from and we ignored the person for whom we were made. And Moses is writing this in Genesis to say, he's really actually saying this in Genesis 1, don't you see how it's supposed to be? We're supposed to have our father look at us and say, I delight in you. And we're supposed to beam back at him. We're supposed to have our father say, you're accepted and I love you and you're beautiful and you're perfect. The whole therapeutic culture actually buys into this, right? It's not bad. Therapeutic culture is not bad, but it makes a valuable insight because it's essentially built around all the dysfunctions we have because our parents haven't delighted us in the way that we were made to be delighted in guess what you're going to fail your kids at that too and the truth is our parents actually never could they never could really delight in us the way we're supposed to be delighted in and their parents dropped the ball as well and so we're all trying to become worthy of delight we're all trying to become worthwhile we're all trying to become beautiful you're trying to become beautiful either physically guys and girls You're trying to become beautiful morally, acceptable morally, intellectually or professionally, whatever it is. You're trying to numb the need, or on the other hand, you're trying to numb the need to be seen as beautiful. That's actually why guys play in video games as much as they do. That's what it is. It's actually spiritual laziness. It's actually fear more than anything else. We're scared. I want, over the next couple of weeks, for you to have... A crisis because something is wrong. It's not supposed to be like this. This was all of it. USC, your daily life here, it was all supposed to be good and beautiful. You weren't supposed to come to USC and feel tons of anxiety about your grades. That wasn't part of the design. You weren't supposed to be come and be crushed by stress. You weren't supposed to live in the fear that a boy may never ask you out or that a girl may never want to go out with you. You weren't supposed to be ensnared in pornography. That's not right. That's not the way it was supposed to be, and we read Genesis one, and Moses is reminding us when it was when it was created, it wasn't supposed to turn out like this. This is wrong. This is wrong. The word "create" that God uses in Genesis one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, is a word only used by uh, describing God in the Bible. It's only God is the person who only ever uh, creates. That word only shows up when He is the actor. And it shows up in one other place. It shows up a bunch in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 65, verses 17 um, through 19, For behold, I create new heavens a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create for behold I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness I rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress no more shall there be in there in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who doesn't fill out his days when the word create shows up again and the Bible It's used to describe God's new creation. The fact that he's looking in on this broken world that's not right and saying, I'm going to make it new again. And there's hope in the midst of our crisis. There's hope in the midst of our bad answers to the why question. And the hope is this. Your answers to why are bad. You're the reason and I'm the reason for the darkness and the brokenness of this world. But God is recreating a new heavens and a new earth. And that doesn't mean another place. He's taking this one and he's making it New again. And he's making a new people, a new Jerusalem to inhabit it. And that's what salvation is. It's not an ethereal spirit world where we're on uh, clouds playing harps. It's the world like it was supposed to be. And for it to be like it was supposed to be, he has to wipe away the wrongness and the darkness in it. And the wrongness and the darkness in it is us. And he wants Us at the same time to be his new humanity. So what he's got to do is he's got to take our wrongness and he's got to take our darkness and he's got to put it on someone else and destroy them for it. And that's what Jesus came to do. And that offering to be the new humanity is free. It costs nothing, but it's this: it is painful. It is free. We take hold of it by faith, trusting on Jesus, like we read in the confession and the assurance. But it's painful, and it's painful for this reason. Our darkness is the thing that we love the most. And it will feel like death to lean on Christ. And this semester we're going to continue to flesh out the way it was supposed to be. Why it went wrong, and how God set about making it right again. Let's pray.